Welcome back once again to the Counter Vortex with your ranter, Bill Weinberg. Ranting at you in the wee hours of May 6th, 2023. As always, from my apartment on Manhattan's Lower East Side. So we're going to be gauging in a further exploration in this rant of the Russian fingerprints on the attempted coup d'etat in Sudan on April 15th that has plunged the country into deep crisis and quite possibly civil war. And, as the reporting is not emphasizing, which derailed a transition to civilian rule that was to have taken place just days later under terms of a deal between the ruling junta and pro-democracy opposition. Now, to briefly recap the facts that we laid out last week, the coup attempt was led by the paramilitary Rapid Support Forces, RSF, which was to have been absorbed into the official armed forces under the terms of the transition deal, because the RSF is not only accused of atrocities in putting down the insurgencies in Darfur and Kordofan regions, about which we'll have more to say later, but also of deadly repression against the pro-democracy movement that has defied harsh emergency measures to repeatedly take to the streets to demand the transition to civilian rule since the military seized complete control in the coup d'etat of October 2021. The RSF has been closely collaborating with the Russian mercenary outfit, the Wagner Group, or, as I am told it is pronounced in Russian as well as in German, the Wagner Group, especially in semi-legal or certainly grossly unregulated gold mining operations in Darfur and Kordofan regions, the Wagner Group appears to be both militarily protecting and financially investing in RSF-controlled semi-legal mines in these regions, as well as operating death squads to eliminate rival and independent gold prospectors and to put down local protests against the mines over land-grabbing and environmental impacts. The arrangement seems to point to a Kremlin-backed design to make the RSF economically independent of the Sudanese state in preparation for an eventual seizure of power, which was finally attempted on April 15th. Quite significantly, Russian plans for Moscow's first military base in Africa at Port Sudan could have been jeopardized by the transition to democratic rule. Since the coup attempt, really fierce fighting has swept the country between the RSF and the Sudan armed forces. Numerous ceasefires have failed to hold, and there seems to be no end in sight. And it appears that Russia is continuing to back the RSF, including with weapons drops. Again, more on this later. Now, as I mentioned last week, whenever discussing great power intrigues in local conflicts, it is important to avoid the vulgar error 
of viewing local forces on the ground as merely pawns of the great powers and to ignore local context. Once again, the two most significant players in the current Sudan conflict are the Sudan Armed Forces Commander, Lieutenant General Abdel Fattah el-Burhan, who had led the junta that took power in the October 2021 coup d'etat, so a bad guy, but also the comparative moderate here, because he had at least finally acquiesced to the demands of the pro-democracy movement and agreed to a transition to civilian rule. The other is RSF commander, Lieutenant General Mohamed Dagalo, popularly known by his nom de guerre, Hemeti, who apparently tried to stage a second coup on April 15th to derail the democratic transition, which he has succeeded in doing, and seizing power for himself and his paramilitary force, which he has not succeeded in doing, at least not yet. And certainly the conflict is being driven by dynamics within Sudan, first and foremost. So let's first talk a little about the local context, and then examine how they fit into the global context, the great power game and the new scramble for Africa. The primary internal contradiction within Sudan is that between the Arab, or Arabified, that is, Arab-speaking, Arab-identifying, ruling caste, and the Black African peoples who continue to speak their own indigenous African languages. This is related to the conflict between pastoralist and semi-nomadic peoples and sedentary farming peoples with the former generally Arab or Arabified and aligned with the ruling elites, and the latter speaking indigenous African languages and excluded from power and even persecuted and in some cases enslaved. This is a conflict, that between pastoralist and sedentary peoples, that stretches clear across the Sahel belt of Africa from Sudan to West Africa and Nigeria, where it has become intertwined with the jihadist insurgencies and the pastoralists, such as the Fulani, excluded from power and persecuted and increasingly stigmatized as terrorists. But in Sudan, it's the opposite pattern. The pastoralists are favored by the ruling elite on the basis of shared language, and the indigenous Black African agricultural peoples stigmatized as a threat to national unity. In Kordofan, the indigenous Black African people are primarily the Nuba and the Nubians. Now, the heartland of ancient Nubia is in the north, straddling what is now the border of Sudan and Egypt, but there are also Nubians in the Nuba Mountains of Kordofan in the south, which is a hinterland and where the RSF has been operating with no accountability and the uh, Nubians have really been getting kicked around. The exiled king of the Nubians, or at least the claimant to this title, 
Sheikh Anwar Makin. I interviewed, along with Peter Lamborn Wilson, on WBAI Radio on January 9th, 1996. And as he related in that interview, at that time, his people were being deported from their lands in the Nuba Mountains of Kordofan to work as slaves on military-controlled plantations and commercial enterprises. Now, this was back during the long dictatorship of Omar Bashir, who was overthrown in a popular revolution in 2019 and is now wanted by the International Criminal Court for Genocide. So while there is still conflict and oppression in Kordofan, hopefully this system of slavery is no longer in place. And then there's the situation in Darfur, where the indigenous sedentary farming peoples are primarily the four F-U-R, hence Darfur, land or realm of the four, and the Masalit, who were also at that time in the 90s being deported as slaves by the military, which is what led to the armed insurgency that emerged at that time in Darfur. And as we all know, starting about 20 years ago, the government response escalated to genocide, with some half million killed and over two million displaced. The violence was primarily carried out by the Janjaweed, an irregular militia force, Janjaweed being a colloquialism in the local Arabic dialect for armed horsemen, who swept in on the four and Masalit villages and put them to the torch and drove out or massacred the inhabitants and seized their lands. And it has been repeatedly pointed out that this is a conflict which is almost certainly rooted in climate change, with increased competition over shrinking water resources and grazing lands linked to desertification, having a hand in setting off the war. Drier land means more territory is needed to maintain a single head of cattle or goats or camels which is what pushed the pastoralists into the lands of the sedentary peoples, and in turn prompted the sedentary peoples to take up arms, in addition to their deportation from their usurped lands as forced labor. And the insurgency, in turn, prompted the pastoralists to form the Janjaweed militia, which became a de facto, at least, extension of the government counterinsurgency campaign and also escalated the usurpation of traditional lands. Now, there is sometimes a reluctance to acknowledge the climate factor on the parts of some human rights advocates because there is a fear that it somehow exculpates Bashir and the Janjaweed leadership who are wanted for war crimes and genocide. And I really reject this attitude. Acknowledging the role of climate change in the conflict doesn't let them off the hook for their crimes, regardless of what economic or ecological roots a conflict may have. It doesn't absolve anyone of atrocities or genocide. That's a false dichotomy. Okay, there was a peace dialogue in Darfur beginning around 15 years ago, 
And in 2011, some, although not all, of the rebel factions agreed to lay down arms. And as a condition of that deal, the Janjaweed were reorganized as the RSF, turning them into a regular force, ostensibly under some kind of official oversight in terms of human rights and basic discipline. But the conflict continued at a lower intensity and seems to be erupting back up to a much higher intensity since the RSF attempted their coup last month, with civilian populations again coming under attack and thousands fleeing as refugees across the border into Chad. Bashir was overthrown in 2019, and a transition government, including both military and civilian figures, came to power. But then, in October 2021, the military elements staged their coup and kicked out their erstwhile civilian partners, who then organized a pro-democracy movement to push for full civilian rule, which was repeatedly met with deadly repression by the RSF. So the RSF proved to be not much of an improvement over its predecessor, the Janjaweed, and its disbandment or absorption into the actual armed forces was a condition of the new transition deal that was worked out in talks between the junta and the pro-democracy movement, which has now been derailed by the attempted RSF coup d'etat. Following all this, Okay, now before we get to the Russian role in the current crisis, let's talk about the U.S. role in laying the groundwork for the crisis. Now, the tankies, that is, the cheerleaders for any odious regime that happens to oppose the U.S., will point out that the U.S. weakened Sudan by encouraging South Sudan to secede and contributed to its destabilization, because South Sudan is where most of the oil is. So the central government in Khartoum saw its oil revenues dramatically slashed by the secession of South Sudan, which became an independent country in 2011, with the diplomatic support of the U.S. being crucial in this endeavor. Now, some 80% of Sudanese oil was in the South, but the port used to ship it abroad is in the North, fed by a pipeline. Port Sudan, where Russia is to build its first military base on the African continent, and its second naval base outside of the ex-USSR after Tartus in Syria. So, a rather strategic place for a military base positioned to cut off the flow of South Sudan's oil in the event that such a contingency arises, which was undoubtedly a consideration when the Khartoum regime agreed to the Russian base there in 2020. And there has very predictably been bickering between Khartoum and South Sudan over the terms for using the pipeline. And now the South Sudan government at Juba is apparently in talks with a Japanese company to build a new pipeline from South Sudan to a new export terminal on the Kenyan coast, allowing them to bypass Sudan, which would impose further economic constraints 
on the Khartoum government. Now, all of this is true, and I don't doubt that weakening the Sudan regime was a part of what motivated the U.S. in its support for South Sudanese independence. However, it is also necessary to recognize that the peoples of South Sudan had their own reasons to want to be free of the North. Like the black African peoples of Darfur and Kordofan, they were being kicked around very badly by the Khartoum regime for a long time. So, again, local context. The South Sudan leadership were not mere pawns of Washington. Now, things have worked out very poorly in South Sudan, which has been stricken by internal armed conflict almost continuously since independence. It should be noted that Sudan may have backed various rebel factions to encourage the destabilization of South Sudan. There have been claims to that effect, and they are not entirely implausible. But fundamentally, the state of permanent crisis in South Sudan is rooted in the system of clientelism that has taken hold there, the model of a ruling clique controlling oil wealth and distributing it in clientelist manner to build a power base, and different factions within the ruling clique seeking to direct wealth and resources to their own region and ethnic group. On the ground, the fighting has primarily pitted the Dinka, the group most closely linked to the ruling faction, against the Nuer, whose legitimate grievances may have been exploited by Khartoum. And probably the independence of South Sudan was, in fact, premature. They clearly didn't develop much of an economy other than oil exploitation with its attendant ecological and social tolls the so-called resource curse. So yes, local context, but also a struggle for control of oil and ultimately control of the African continent by outside powers. Which brings us to the current crisis. Okay, if you're looking for more evidence that Russia has been backing the RSF even amid the current fighting, even as the UN is attempting to pressure Burhan and Hemeti to chill out and come to the negotiating table, even as the death toll in Sudan since the fighting began last month is now over 500, with some 300,000 displaced, and the country clearly on the brink of civil war, well, just spend some time on Google, you'll find plenty. This from... Uh, CNN, April 20th, I will read excerpts, Dateline London, the Russian mercenary group Wagner has been supplying Sudan's rapid support forces with missiles to aid their fight against the country's army, Sudanese and regional diplomatic sources have told CNN. The sources said the surface-to-air missiles have significantly buttressed RSF paramilitary fighters and their leader, Mohammed Hamdan Dagalo, a.k.a. Hemeti, as he battles for power with General Abdel Fattah al-Burhan, Sudan's military ruler and the head of its armed forces. 
in bordering Libya, where a Wagner-backed rogue general, Khalifa Haftar, controls swaths of land, satellite imagery supports these claims, showing an unusual uptick in activity on Wagner bases. Satellite images analyzed by CNN and open source group All Eyes on Wagner show one Russian transport plane shuttling between two key Libyan air bases belonging to Haftar and used by the sanctioned Russian fighting group, meaning Wagner. Haftar has backed the RSF, sources say, although he denies taking sides, and increased Wagner activity at Haftar's bases, combined with claims by Sudanese and regional diplomatic sources, suggest that both Russia and the Libyan general may have been preparing to support the RSF even before the eruption of violence. The uptick in movement by the Ilyushin 76 transport aircraft started two days before the conflict in Sudan began on Saturday, April 15th, and continued until at least Wednesday, April 19th, according to satellite images and Netherlands-based open-source specialist Gerjan. The plane flew from Haftar's Kadim airbase in Libya to the Syrian coastal city of Latakia, where Russia has a major airbase, on Thursday, April 13th. The next day, it flew from Latakia back to Kadim. The day after that, it flew again to another Haftar airbase in Libya's Jufra. It parked in a secluded area, something flight tracker Gurjan considered highly unusual. This was the day the conflict erupted. The transport plane returned to Latakia on Tuesday, April 18th, before flying back to the Libyan militia airbase of Kadim and then to Jufra, according to Gurjan's research. That day, Russia airdropped surface-to-air missiles to Dagalo's militia positions in northwest Sudan, according to regional and Sudanese sources. For years, Dagalo, a.k.a. Hemeti, has been a key beneficiary from Russian involvement in Sudan as the primary recipient of Moscow's weapons and training, end quote. So seemingly a pipeline in Russian arms from Syria, where Russia has a massive military presence, to Libya, where it has a paramilitary presence in the form of the Wagner Group, and then to the RSF in Sudan. Okay, a caveat. I'm a skeptical of journalism based on anonymous sources as anybody. Absolutely. But to merely dismiss this account on the basis of anonymous sources would be just as arbitrary as to accept it without question. Here's another one from German news agency Deutsche Welle, or DW, April 26th, excerpts, quote, Since the military's return to power, Wagner's collaboration with Hemeti has picked up in February 2022 as Russia launched its invasion of Ukraine. Hemeti traveled to Moscow to give his backing to Russian plans to set up a Navy base on the Red Sea at Port Sudan. 
On that trip to Russia, the plane Hemeti traveled in was also transporting gold bullion, according to the New York Times, citing two senior Western officials. During the talks in Moscow, Hemeti reportedly requested help from Russian officials to acquire more military equipment. In 2021, as much as 32.7 tons of Sudanese gold, worth about $1.9 billion, was unaccounted for, according to a report by U.S. broadcaster CNN. The report also found evidence that shows that Russia has worked closely with Sudan's military junta to ensure that billions of dollars in gold bypass the Sudanese treasury in exchange for the Kremlin's political and military backing, end quote. And then they quote Ahmed Abdallah, a Sudanese human rights activist in exile in Germany, who says, quote, all the while, this corrupt scheme involving the Wagner Group and the military government has been supervised by Hemeti. It always felt like both men, Hemeti and Burhan, were never on the same page regarding how to do business with Wagner, end quote. And now they have clearly fallen out, and Wagner has got its money and firepower behind Hemeti. Once again, that's from German news agency DW, April 26th. The New York Times referenced in the DW account I just read was from Russia with love. <laughs> A Putin ally mines gold and plays favorites in Sudan. Backed by the Kremlin, the shadowy network known as the Wagner Group is getting rich in Sudan while helping the military to crush a democracy movement. June 5th, 2022. And the um, referenced CNN account is Russia is plundering gold in Sudan to boost Putin's war effort in Ukraine. July 29th, 2022. And isn't it curious that the tankies who squawk Coup d'etat! Coup d'etat! Every time George Soros buys a laptop for a dissident group in one of their pet dictatorships, we'll have nothing to say about any of this. And I will again point out the coups d'etat that have benefited Russia, at the very least, with French forces being kicked out and Wagner invited in, in Mali in August 2020, and Burkina Faso in October 2022 shortly followed by a massive escalation in human rights abuses in both cases, I will point out, and with similar reports of Wagner being given access to mineral resources in exchange for services rendered. Russia has quite evidently got its own imperial intrigues going on in Africa and in Sudan, and I'm really tired of all the tanky denialism that Russia is an imperialist power. Now, of course, Russia doesn't have nearly the global reach of the United States, and its methodologies are clearly much more crude and blunt than those of the U.S. empire, but it is still imperialism by any definition. And at this moment, an aggressive and revanchist imperialism, while the U.S., on the contrary, is in a posture of retrenchment. 
And if you don't get this, well, as the old joke goes, denial isn't just a river in Sudan. Get it? This has been Bill Weinberg with the Counter Vortex. Check us out online at countervortex.org, where everything that I've been ranting about tonight is blogged up, hyperlinked, and documented. Please support us on Patreon. We remain just one patron short of our modest goal of $100 per podcast. So somebody please subscribe and put us over the top. Seriously, all of these tanky websites that are relentlessly promoted by Russian state media like RT and Sputnik, you know who I mean, are raking in gobs and gobs of obscene moolah, while Counter Vortex is still trying to inch up to 100 bucks per goddamn podcast. Just do it. Patreon.com slash Counter Vortex. Join the Counter Vortex. Join the resistance. And rant on you next time.